welcome to Healthy Perspectives with Jeremiah, a podcast that brings you current social and cultural issues through a clinical lens. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, Rumble, YouTube, all kinds of places to look for us. Please like and subscribe on any of them or all of them. We also love interacting with our audience, so join us on all the social platforms such as LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and many more. All right. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we have a, a guest today. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and introduce him. You know, you're going to probably uh, realize pretty quick that this is pretty informal, uh, even though we're going to be talking about some real stuff, because I have my brother with me today. And so uh, we we grew up together. We we know each other well. It'll, it'll probably come through. Um, but as always, we appreciate that you're joining us. And hopefully today you'll get some pretty uh, neat information. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and give a, a little rundown on uh, what what he does or has done uh, that I know. He can clear up any gaps that uh, he thinks are, are significant. Uh, the main reason that he's here today, I'll start with that, and then I'll work into some other stuff. Uh, he just finished up his dissertation, and I know some of you listeners out there, uh, you participated by, uh, you know, helping him collect data and getting him good, accurate data. And so if you're one of those, thank you so much for doing that. We appreciate it. And uh, as he's completed his dissertation, uh, I thought it would be really cool to have him in here to talk about it. And so let's give you a little bit of background. Uh, you know, when we we grew up together, so his history is very similar to mine until about 18. Uh, and then he went into the, the Marine Corps a little before I did, and uh, he spent a lot more time in the Marine Corps than I did. Uh, he also went to the Naval Academy. Uh, he has, what, two two bachelors? Is that is that right? Uh, well, it's, it's a bachelor's in physics, um, essentially, but we all yeah. get engineering too, so yeah. Okay, so there you go. Uh, and then he got his master's degree, and then he is now about to wrap up his uh, PhD. So he's he's educated. He's got a lot of background there, but as important, maybe even more important, as my grandfather would say, uh, he's got a lot of experience. Uh, he was, you know, doing in the military. He did uh, aviation ordnance, so you know that's that's pretty interesting. Not not too many people do that. Uh, he also was an MP. Uh, after he finished the Naval Academy and uh, he ran a couple of businesses. He's now uh, doing some, while he's finishing up his PhD, he's been teaching a lot. So uh, he had a, he, he, ha he can go into details that he wants to go into, but that's a little bit of background that gets you up to where he is right now. Do you have anything that you want to add to that? Uh, not, I was mean, just one slight correction. It's a, it's a, it's a doctorate, but it's an EDD. So it's, yeah. it's, it's on the same plane. It's just tangent yep. is all. So, so he's got same. an educational doctorate. Correct. Yeah. So there's doctorates of medicine and doctorates of a lawyer and a JD. And then this one's just education. So it's the same thing. It's just in a different flavor. Yep. Cool. And today's topic, we're really going to address some of the content of the dissertation. And so really, we want to focus on that today. And uh, hopefully he'll come back and, you know, we've been talking a little bit about starting something together. So there's the possibility that you'll get a, a little taste of us uh, working together as we move forward as well. 
So uh, without any more delays, let's, let's jump into it. Uh, you finished up, but let's just talk about the process of doing a dissertation because, you know, we got a, a good chunk of the audience who have not, who've not achieved the academic level of a doctorate in anything. What in the world is that process like for those who don't know? So it's a combination of coursework and then uh, independent research and uh, and then independent uh, data gathering. And there's two forms you can go through, uh, which is a qualitative analysis or quantitative analysis. Uh, in the world of education, the vast majority of the research is in uh, qualitative analysis. Uh, but I went a different route and went quantitative. I have more of a math mind and the, the mathematical uh, process made more sense to me. So that's, that's that. Uh, the coursework, I want, it's around 40 credits roughly if you have a master's degree. And in my particular situation, it, it took about two and a half years to complete and the dissertation itself, uh, Probably about a year and a half of that spent on research, uh, writing up the individual chapters and then getting, getting the, uh, I guess the, the proper approvals to conduct the research. There's a lot of, uh, steps you have to go through, um, through an IRB internal review board. So you have to justify what it is to make sure you're not, uh, doing any harm in the collection of data and all that stuff. And then once you get that uh, approved, you collect the data and basically it's home free from there. You just have to analyze it. And that's pretty fun. Awesome. And they've accepted your dissertation and mm -hmm. it's been approved. You are just now waiting for the, the actual diploma to come through. That's it. Yep. All done. So awesome. that's pretty nice. Yeah. That's super cool. Uh, it's like, I, I don't know. I I think about the the idea of of earning a a doctorate in anything, and part of it's appealing, and part of it's like, eh, I mean, really, do I need to do that for any reason? Uh, I do a lot of reading and research on my own, but I got to tell you, it's really I don't know from a distance and knowing how much I know you and I've been part of your life. It's really cool that you've done it. I'm like super proud to have a brother that did it. I just don't know if I'll ever be that brother who did it. <laughs> so you, you never know. Uh, it's, it's weird. It, it kind of goes back to the, why I joined the core in a sense, like, I, or no, let me back up why I picked the Marines over the others, let's say, uh, because I was told that, that the Marines sucked the most, like it was the hardest. It was the worst, yeah. uh, initial training. And so I guess from that point on, I just decided, Hey, what's the worst possible path to go down? And, and then I've just been picking that ever since. So why not? That, that sounds like a, uh, uh, I, it sounds like you like torture or something. Well, yeah. And we've talked about that before. Yeah. <laughs> the pain is good. I, I, I enjoy the pain and getting through it. It's not always enjoyable, but it's the, the other side is is where you feel that yeah benefit no i talk about it on this podcast all the time actually you know if without discomfort there's there's no incentive to grow yeah no for sure so all right well let's let's get into it look uh, we're dealing with material you know way better than me 
because you've spent the last couple of years looking at it and figuring it out and getting your words as right as you could at this particular juncture in your life. And so uh, I'm, I'm probably going to sound a little less intelligent about, you know, what you wrote, uh, but hopefully we'll be able to contribute. Um, and more importantly, what I honestly care about the most is this podcast is designed to create perspective and to help people learn and grow on their own. And so I'm going to venture down some paths here. We'll see, we'll see what happens. Um, I'm going to start with you early in the dissertation, you defined accountability and you, you defined it. Uh, uh, let's see. My note here says the definition of accountability is not universally accepted. And I stopped right there when I was reading it and I'm going, yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> but then I also started thinking, I mean, I honestly, I, I was, I've been kind of slow about reading this because it's, you know, when I read things that are really, I, I call them, I call them thick or heavy. Uh, I have to reread parts over and over. I'm like, okay, hold on. What does that mean again? Look it up. What does that mean again? Look it up. You know, I do that when I read somebody like C.S. Lewis. Um, you know, there's, there's a few authors that are like that for me and, you know, dissertations or a journal writing for journals are typically like that. They're just thick or heavy. And I, I started going, well, yeah, but then how do you solve that problem? There can't be a universally accepted definition of accountability because there's so many variables to it. So then I read on which can cause confusion within the director, provider, and observer relationship. And that's where I paused and I went, holy smokes, that's a problem. <laughs> and so I would love if you could just spend a minute or so teasing that apart, like helping us understand the director, the provider, and the observer, and why those, why those three variables are so hard to get on a single page. Yes. I mean, that's a whole dissertation in itself, honestly, but the, I guess the crux of it would be, so the the director is sort of like the enforcer uh, in the, in the relationship. Um, the provider is the one kind of doing the work and the observer is some third party that can see both pieces. Uh, and, and so that's kind of the simple version of that. And then the reason that, that, uh, that accountability within that dynamic is so important is that, the perspectives of each of them is different. And then you combine that with the, the, the world view of each of those. And you have an exponential, I guess, growth in how, uh, accountability can be, I guess, defined or, uh, assumed. Does that make sense? It does. I've actually been putting together. It's kind of funny that you went there because I honestly did not anticipate this next part. But I have been putting together a a a podcast I haven't put out yet uh, on the ripple effect, and what you're describing right now is exactly that. It's the idea that once once you pick a group, say the director group, the ripple effect is there's millions of uh, data points behind that. And some of those are going to overlap with the provider or the observer, and some of them will have nothing to do. They're independent of them. 
and that ripple effect of it. And then you add to that one more component, which is over time, which is a lot of what you hit in your dissertation is you talk about, you know, collecting over time to come up with like, uh, I'm using my language, not yours, but norms, right? Norms within the training model, norms within the behavior model. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of interesting that it overlaps. So let's do this. I'm curious. uh, I I don't know if this will work, but we're going to, we're going to give it a shot. There has been uh, several uh, police killings um, by, you know, accident or on purpose we you know like that'll be weighed out in the judicial system but in the month of january we've got you know like keenan anderson tyree nichols uh jackson lieber billy couch christopher um, mercurio and these are all different they are all different scenarios and if you know about any of them most people right now know about the tyree nichols one um but these all happened in january and there's there's been a few more uh and by the way, for the audience, uh, police accidentally do kill people sometimes. It's, you know, I, I, and sometimes there there's, you know, behaviors that lead up to it that are problematic. And sometimes it's just the nature of being called to extreme incidents and things happen and it, it's a problem, right? Like, uh, I, I believe, I don't know if one of these, I was reading one, uh, somebody got hit by a cop who was flying down the road and they were crossing the street, had their sirens going and everything and didn't, they didn't hear the cop, see the cop. The cop was reporting to an emergency, no intent, right? But it happens and it gets statistically added to the data. So going back to these, uh, these incidents, how would we, you know, say like the director and and we're doing a hypothetical, so we, we don't have to get it perfect. Uh, that's not our intent. It's educational here. It's trying to help people understand. Uh, how would a director look at one of those incidents? It, are you familiar with any of them? I am familiar with, with several of them. Yes. Okay. okay. So how would a director look at an incident where a person dies? So typically... Uh, in this, in situations like this, it's, uh, it's after the fact. So it's, uh, it's an action consequence type of accountability where, uh, let's say some high level, uh, executive within, let's say law enforcement or, or within government will want to hold account the actions that, that was observed. So it, it's, it's in, uh, it, it's in time. Right. So it's the, the incident occurred. And then let's say, do we hold someone responsible? And then who is that individual? So accountability, um, with regards to responsibility for an action. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you're saying it's past tense. Like there's, there's correct. 100% past tense. Yes. And that leads back to in your, in your dissertation, you talk a lot about, uh, the, the, the independence of, of a provider, like they, they have autonomy in the moment and they have to, because they're being called to unique situations. So is that, is that, okay. So then let's, let's, let's use that bridge and go into what the provider would say about one of these incidents. Uh, they're, they're in the moment they're in that world. And so it exists in real time for them, um, which is part of the title of the dissertation, right? In real time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so they're, 
they're accountable for their actions in that moment. And so they, I didn't quite get into this within the dissertation, but there's, there's, they project forward. And so what are they, what are they capable of doing and what are they good at? And then there's in the moment and then there's after the fact, what did I just do kind of a thing, right? So they exist within, within that time frame, all three, almost simultaneously, right? Yeah. And so for, for them, their, their limited window within that moment is where they're really holding themselves accountable. What am I doing? Not what did I do or what am I going to do? It's what am I doing and how well uh, can they do that? How well can they exist in that moment? And that's a, that's a tough place within a life or death situation, uh, which is what first responders often find themselves in, right? So there's, there's a lot of professions that, that exist within, uh, critical decision making, but not all of them are life and death, let's say for themselves or others. And, and so you're looking at military first responders and maybe a handful of other, uh, moments, let's say a deep sea fisher, uh, fishermen, you know, out there where they're captains of boats and if they turn wrong, people die. Right. I mean, you can find some, but we know of, of first responders and, and military is, is always existing in that world. Yeah. Yeah. So the provider has to look at like what they are capable of. So they're leaning on their history. Mm -hmm. They have to make critical decisions in the moment. And then after the fact, they debrief and try to figure out where they got it right and where they got it wrong so that in the future, they have this to lean on. Yes. And it's fast. It happens fast. All of that. Even the analysis happens fast. Mm -hmm. And so in your dissertation, you make you make a, a pretty strong case for the importance of training. But let's let's be real. I mean, this is how do you train? for the the impossible essentially because there each situation is going to be unique you come onto a scene and there's four people involved and one of them has mental health but you have no idea what they're dealing with but you could tell they've got some mental health stuff going on um two of them are under the influence of something and you can tell but you don't know what it is or how it's going to make them behave and then you know one person's on the phone and the others are all mad at them because they made the call and you're there now and you know the the as a as a provider right and and the provider shows up like how in the world do you even venture down the path of trying to train for this junk yes if if i had the answer to that question i would have much more than a dissertation uh, <laughs> so that's i guess that's where i would start but i guess the easy easy answer for me to say is, is so i'll just restate the question how do you train for seemingly the impossible. And the answer is always. And in you military people and you first responders out there, you'll know what I'm talking about uh, because it's, you have to constantly be thinking about it, constantly be rehearsing it uh, mentally. And then you have to actively train as much as you can, because in order to build that repertoire of 
uh, of knowledge that you need to lean on. Um, you, you have to experience it over and over and over again. You don't get good at breaking down a weapon, uh, without doing that over and over again. You don't get good at handling, uh, DUI cases or domestic violence cases without experiencing it over and over again. So the more you can train in that, uh, in, in the hypothetical and in the real, the better you'll get at it. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me a little bit. Yes. Uh, but I've got some frame of reference to lean on Sure, and much of our audience doesn't. So mm-hmm. how do we get uh, to the point where an observer, somebody who is outside of the director and the provider understands the complexities? Cause see like a director uh, we would hope at least is somebody who came up within the system and understands the role and responsibilities of the provider. Uh, that's what we would hope that unfortunately that's not always the case, which is kind of odd to me. Uh, that being said, the one who doesn't understand it the most is probably the observer. I would, I would presume. Mm-hmm. And yet that's the one who wants accountability the most in a situation where something goes wrong. Um, and I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm not, I'm not picking a side here on this. I, I'm just trying to say, how do we get observers to genuinely understand the complexity that a provider is in and be more reasonable in their accountability? Is that even possible? No, and it shouldn't be, honestly. They they are a crucial aspect within the accountability system because they're the ones that are living in the world that the director and provider are supposed to be providing that service to. Does that so so they they they're crucial because they they're the outside uh accountability mechanism that should drive what uh what kind of training or what kind of development that the responders um gain and that's what i'm hoping within this dissertation to to sort of promote and that is you don't it's it's hard to understand what these individuals go through uh because you don't exist in this world every day but but you see things and you should call them out when they are a problem but you should also call out the good things that you see because it affects how so what i call the self efficacy which is a very it's a well known academic term for you know what it is that you believe you can do and if all you hear as a first responder is the negative then it makes it really tough to lean on those experiences that are good that drive better behavior and so they're there's they're essential in in both call out the negative absolutely uh as first responders we we want to be better there isn't a first responder out there that doesn't want to be better at their job um just like an athlete you know call out the negatives your foot placement was wrong it was a bad shot whatever uh call it out they want to know cuz they want to get better and first responders live in that same world uh but we also want to know hey when have when have we done it right and mm-hmm. And it it drives both things at the same time. Yeah. 
No, that absolutely like look that that was a perfect segue. I couldn't have done it any better because one of the one of the questions that came up for me when I was looking at accountability through the lens of your dissertation, uh, you talked about reward and sanction, and in that dynamic, that means there's. I mean, inherently within uh, accountability, there has to be both. And unfortunately, sometimes we highlight mishaps more. And they're, in the mental health world, uh, we know that this is actually relatively uh, ordinary. We do this uh, as a, a human process. We look at the flaws more often than the successes but intentionally creating some balance to that equation you're saying would be super helpful. And the observers are the ones who can do that. Okay. Yeah. So they're, yes. that's their role. All it, right. it, it really is. Yeah. Because they, they don't exist in that world. So it has to come from a place of what did I see? And it, and maybe also ask the question, is that right? You know, is what I saw right? Am I, am I, am I stating what I'm observing and is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, if, if I'm an observer, then I'm putting myself in the observer uh, position. It might be something where it would be really, really good for me to let my media know that I want some of the good news. <laughs> like find, find that officer, that EMT who showed up and saved a life. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, so, for sure. It looks like uh, we got some company back there. Sorry about that. No worries. Okay, so, we can, well, maybe. don't worry about it. They, I, I I can only see a blur. I have no idea what that is. I mean, okay. I do, but yeah, the yeah. audience will have no idea. Okay. Um, and so the. Uh, sidebar for a second my brother also has a family he's got three kids and a wife and uh you know we we just uh saw the blur of one of them yeah all good all good (laughs) so um okay uh so if we if we're typically highlighting mishaps we really want observers to step up not just highlight mishaps but highlight the the good stuff and really the the best way an observer I, I think potentially could do this and you tell me if you have a better idea is really push the media to give us some of the good news like really get that done I'll, i i think of an example uh a, a few years back here uh in 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 my area uh we had a, a situation a really unfortunate situation uh, i live near uh, lakes and rivers and stuff and uh just south of where i live uh, there was there's a a relatively large lake and uh, a baby uh, was lost in the lake and there is uh, there was posted an image uh as the as the law enforcement pulled the baby out of the water already deceased there was an image of the law enforcement uh, person kneeling and just crying over the baby. And to me, that is something that that stuff doesn't make it into the media very much. And there's a reason why, like people, a lot of people don't want to see death. Uh, and I get that. But the beauty of watching a person love another person so much that they never even got to meet. 
that it, it, it took them to their knees and brought tears. Our law enforcement, our EMTs, unfortunately, they do that routinely. They're, they're in that regularly. And, and I, honestly, I would love to see that, that kind of compassion uh, uh, out there a little bit more as an observer. And we just, we just don't. So do you see it differently or do, or do you see it similarly? Yeah, it's, it's hard because we, most of the people we, we would interact with, and I, I was former law enforcement. I don't know. Did you talk about that at the very beginning? I told, I told everybody you're an MP. Uh, in oh the yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, we, the people we interact with, generally speaking, we don't know, uh, but we want the best for them. We want the outcome to be, to be positive, uh, because we, we often don't see them on their best days, I guess is the nice way to put it. Uh, something is wrong. So, some uh, vehicle incident or, I mean, I, I could just list a whole bunch, but it's not a, they're not good days. If we're there, it's not good. And so we, we want to try to make the situation better, which was kind of our motto, you know, make, make, make it better. We can't, can't make it fair. We can't make it right. We can't make it, you know, perfect, but we can make it better. We can leave it better. And, and sometimes, yeah, I mean, working with, with families, uh, kids, uh, it's, it's really sad. Like it gets, it can get really sad and it's, we're personally attached to those moments and, and we don't want, we don't want to cause pain in any way. So we're not there responding, trying to be like, okay, how can we, how can we make this like really tough thing, you know, look awesome. That's not our, if it's boring, it's perfect. Right. Right. If we never have to take out a weapon, if we never have to do anything physical, it's perfect. That's what we want for them and for us. Uh, And so, I mean, maybe I got lost on the point on that one. No, you're good. I mean, you're, you're basically saying the same thing, which is, you know, you want it to be better and that's you know the idea of of showing up in the chaos is 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 something that you, you moment to moment are looking for a way to make it better than it was a moment ago mm-hmm. it actually leads me to something that i just had this conversation with my my daughter um <laughs> it was so frustrating okay so i'm i'm riding along sitting in the passenger seat my daughter's driving she's she's young she's 16 and you know i routinely ride with her it gives me good you know daddy daughter time she doesn't know that i do that for that reason but she thinks i just need a ride every time sometimes i'm just wanting to be there and at the end what happens is i'm sitting there and the 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 alarm comes on for a police officer all right the sirens we hear it i see the lights and I tell my daughter, after I realize she's going, I'm like, hold on, you see the, sir- the sirens, you hear the sirens, like, pull over. And she's, 
she says something kind of naive, which is, you know, 16, you got a little, little grace. That's why I was there, I guess. Uh, and she goes, she goes, Oh, I, I thought that was just for the ambulance. I'm like, Oh, what are you hmm. kidding me? Did you pass the drive? I didn't say that. Uh, but in my mind, I'm thinking that. And I said, my response to her was no, somebody's having a really bad day and somebody's trying to go help them. You get out of the way. You let them get to somebody who's got a much worse day than us. And if it means we're a little bit late, if we're not having the day that they're having. <laughs> so get out of the way, let them go by and then carry on with your business. Um, and she, uh, she didn't really respond, which in a 16 year old world means I heard you, <laughs> but it's <laughs> yeah. the idea of what you're saying is, you know, you, you've got to, you've got to show up. You got to do the best that you can. And as an observer, which is what we were in that scenario, we're watching the incident. We didn't get to see the actual incident, but we got to see a portion, a narrow portion of it. Mm -hmm. We had a role to play besides just observing. And sometimes that happens. So, yeah, actually, that's kind of interesting that you said that because um, as uh, law, enforce law enforcement, fire and EMTs, when we arrive on a scene, that is our role at first. We are the observer. There's already a director provider relationship occurring within that moment. If it's a, if it's a conflict and then we have to insert ourselves as a new provider, which is a really interesting dynamic because we, we have to observe it first. So we're back here. We see what's going on. Then, then we insert ourselves and now we become a provider and we try to change that dynamic and put it on us so we can take the heat within that moment to try to lower the temperature within that environment. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, you're talking about de-escalation. We do that in family work all the time. Yeah, And that comes back to something that I have hit in my podcast over and over with communication. Mm -hmm. And that means what you're saying is uh, the, the, uh, the, the provider has to be a, a professional communicator. Oh, words. Yeah. hundred. Yes. But okay. So let me ask this. Cause I, I honestly don't know. I didn't go through the law enforcement path. Um, what, <laughs> okay. So communication is not just words. Words are important, mm -hmm. but communication is going to be body language positioning. And it's going to be paraverbals, tone, volume, cadence. Mm -hmm. How, I mean, this is anecdotal. So like, I'm, you know, like we're not looking at facts here. I mean, maybe you have some, maybe you don't, but how well do we train communication within law enforcement in terms of the big three, the, the, the words, the paraverbals and the body language. That can vary from department to department. I think baseline training could be a whole lot better uh, within within that realm. We're very good tactically. And by tactically, I mean use of tools. So mm -hmm. within uh, the physical realm. But when it comes to the the non the the non action, I guess you could call it uh, it could be better, I think. Mm -hmm. And I, I would probably have to do further study in that to see uh, how that varies from department to department. I know in uh, in Oceanside, uh, California, which is a former place that I lived, uh, the 
the cadence and the tone was really important. They were really good at it. And that was, that was really cool to see uh, because it, 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 it started from the dispatchers through the radio and then on scene. Like it was, they were, they were very well trained on that. And then in another city I worked uh, with, they also uh, were very good with their nonverbal and their positioning, which that was actually really neat. Like they're super professional when they would come up and they would make sure that if you take, let's say, so here's a hypothetical. Let's say you respond to a, a domestic, right? Uh, and let's say in this situation, let's say it's a man and a woman and they're outside the home. So you don't have to make entry or knock on the door, uh, which is very dangerous to do. But let's just say you they're already outside and the conflict is out there. If you arrive on scene and they're kind of going at it, let's say verbally, so there's no physical altercation. So you don't have to embed yourself in that. Uh, you separate the individuals, right? So you get there and you have a, you, hopefully you have a partner in that situation and you separate them. Uh, they want to be, even if they're talking with you, they want to be aware of the other. And so they will try to position themselves so that they can talk to you while watching them. Uh, and I, in the clinical world, I don't know if you ever work with groups and stuff that they might position themselves in a way that's like that, or maybe you do that on purpose. I don't know. Um, but, but what we want to do is we want to gain the full attention of the individual, uh, that we're speaking with. So if I have, let's say the, the, the male and the other person has the female, um, we need to position ourselves so that they're forced to not be able to see like, Hey, look at, I'm here, look at me right. and let's talk about this. And so if the other person starts to move or turn, you just turn with them to try to, Hey, nope, back here. You're on me and let's, let's get this, this down. And, and so, yeah, it's super important, but however, I mean, I think I just went off on a tangent there, but I think, uh, yeah, it's super important and I think it could be done better. And I don't know if there's a, is a, is a standard, um, that could be set that could be countrywide just because, uh, culturally in different areas, we operate differently. Uh, so how you do it in Texas may be different than how you do it in Montana versus how you do it in, uh, New Jersey, but there should be an emphasis placed on that, on the, 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 the non-tools version of communication. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, look, you're, I think you're right. There, there are cultural differences depending on where we are. Uh, you know, I've seen it, you've seen it. Uh, anybody who's really paying attention has, has gone anywhere besides where they are right now has probably seen how, you know, even going to a gas station, you encounter somebody and it's a different feel. Um, and so that, that part I get, but there are some universals, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like a smile is a smile. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, there, there's, there's certain universals. Uh, I'll tell you one that, that that's pretty universal. And well, I think it's totally, it might even be actually completely universal as a therapist. I don't know that all the therapists do this, but for me, one of them is uh, proximity to the exit. I am always aware of proximity to the exit, not just mine. Matter of fact, preferably not mine, theirs. Uh, for instance, uh, my couch uh, in my office is set by the door. I do that intentionally. I, I actually configured my entire office based on the couch needs to be by the door. Because if a client 
is, you know, is, you know, going to act out for some reason, I want them to have an escape that's easy because mm-hmm. if they escape, uh, there's less damage, not just physical damage to the office, but damage to, you know, having to go through me. Uh, like, I don't want that set up, uh, you know, but in law enforcement at times or with EMTs, they may be literally putting themselves in between on purpose because you, like you said, one, they're trained with the physical stuff. But the other is if they come at you, that's different than if they go at each other. And mm-hmm. usually the observer or the, uh, yeah, the, what they are as observers at that point, um, but they're the participants in the escalation. Mm-hmm. They, they are potentially at least less likely to go through you than to, you know, to try to attack the other person. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think we, I don't know. I mean, uh, anecdotally, just on the side, I, I think it's something worth looking at. I mean, I would love, I, I don't know that I'm willing to do that research, but I would love to see if somebody has done the research on uh, communication and particularly the three things that we talked about, the body language, the paraverbals and the words, because my understanding is the words are taught pretty routinely. Um mm-hmm. But then I see something like uh, I've watched the Tyree Nichols video and I see how their words, they got confused. And I'm like, "Eh." I, you know, it, it, you know, as a therapist, I'm going, I mean, I understand, but I'm thinking, I'm actually wondering like who was actually in charge on the scene because they should have been the one barking the, the, the instructions and everybody else should have gone secondary and just repeated the instructions of the first, but that's coming from a chain of command model that I worked from in the military. And so they're all autonomous in a scenario like that, right? They're using what they think they know and hoping that they're right. And so they change who's in charge routinely in that video and it does contribute to a fair amount of confusion. I don't know how much it contributes to his death, but it did create communication confusion. And so yeah, yeah. let me, um, uh, yeah. I'll push back just a little bit on that. It's in a situation like that, there should have been only one person communicating and no repeats. Okay. Only one, because in a situation where someone is being detained um, or apprehended, what, however you want to call, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, the the direction should come from one person so that that person can focus on those directions from that individual. And even if this, the the uh, the order is repeated exactly, it shifts the focus of the individual to another um, commander, yeah. I guess. And that, and even if the directions are the same, it still creates confusion because now you've got two sources of sound coming from two locations and, and you don't want to do that. You want it to be clear. It should be one step at a time and it should be clear from one individual. And interesting. And then, and then a command like get on the ground is too vague. Yeah. No, that's interesting because I, I'm I'm putting it into context that I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. In a clinical setting, if we were doing, say, like if I was doing co-therapy with another therapist, which I've done many, many times, uh, the co-therapy, um, there's 
because we are in dialogue, I think there's inherently a difference. It's not, it's not directive. It's, it's to create and spur and, you know, create growth opportunity and spur ideas. And so uh, inherently that's different, but I'm also thinking even going in, we do establish a little bit. It's not like a, a clear hierarchy in the sense of the way hierarchy is established in the military, but it's pretty clear that, hey, you're the lead or I'm the lead. And we actually make that known at the very beginning when we are, uh, when whoever's given the instructions to the group. So mm-hmm. if we're giving instruction to the group, it's it's the one who's giving the initial instructions that technically takes the lead. That doesn't mean they can't hand over the torch uh, or the torch can't be taken, which is fine because it's dialogue instead of monologues. Um, and so, but at the end, usually the wrap up almost in, inevitably is going to come from the person who started it. So you get the open and the close and you know, then the hierarchy um, but it's it's different uh, when you're in the in the critical situation of a uh, uh, you know a situation like what we were just talking about. So mm-hmm. that's super interesting to me too. Uh, I, I want to like just out of curiosity, uh, you know, and, and I know we're going to jump a little bit to something new. Uh, do, well, before we do, is there anything you want to add to what we've talked about? No, that's so, good. I mean, that's kind of the beginning of the dissertation part, and so that's. Flavor one. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, okay. So I, I, I do want to, I, I want to talk about this. Uh, I, I'm going back a tiny bit to go forward in a slightly different way for a moment, just because I want to address it. I think of a situation like in uh, Uvalde, Texas, where a bunch of law enforcement showed up to a shooting at a school and didn't act. Essentially, that's what happened. They didn't act. Uh, they they waited and waited and waited. There was a massive delay. And mm-hmm. I think about what you said earlier about the focus, and then I repeated it about how it's easier uh, in terms of psychological approach to focus on the negatives and not balance it with some positives. In, in your research, uh, in, in terms of decision-making, does do you think any of that decision-making process is... I don't know, delayed at times because of fear of the consequences as opposed to, uh, you know, being able to say, hey, look, we've gotten all of these rewards because we act and we act in a way that is kind and respectful, but also very firm and and, and, and loves in, in a firm way. Do you think that that imbalance is causing some of these frozen opportunities or and that is that just me making a reach? No, I think it it is making an impact. And I'm I'm gonna be thinking out loud based on what I know of the situation and what I know of the research that I've done, uh, which I wish I had more knowledge of both, honestly. Like I feel pretty versed in in all of these, but but there's there's always more to learn. But I think so let me let me see if I can put this uh as simple as possible. Uh, self-efficacy and of, of what you're able to do. So what you can do is fully intertwined with the accountability mechanism. They, they are, they, they are inseparable because if you take action, the action always has some sort of consequences, at least in our environment. Now, 
And so part of the rehearsal mechanism that EMTs, law enforcement and fire go through is, is if I do this, then this, or Mm -hmm. if I don't do this, then this and how that plays out. And the, and the second, this is usually what, what might happen to me or what might happen to my unit or what might happen, uh, to, uh, the others, whatever that is and however that plays out. So in a situation like Uvalde, the accountability mechanism dominated the action mechanism in that situation, or at least that's what it appears to be. Because if there's more than a one or two minute delay, oh, wait, let me back up. From what I understand, they heard shots being fired. Mm -hmm. So it's not a one or two minute delay. If there's more than a five second delay, then, uh, then lives are, are, are ending it right now. So how can the accountability mechanism, uh, dominate the action mechanism in that case? And that is it's experiential not in maybe their own experience and what they went through, let's say. So this, again, this is all hypothetical. I'm putting myself in a position that, that I wasn't in, right. I've been in others, but not this one. Uh, their experience is through the consequences that they've observed by others taking actions and maybe those actions not going well. And, and so they didn't want to put themselves possibly, they didn't want to put themselves in a position to where if they acted and it went wrong, now they're going to feel the effects of that because the accountability, uh, from, from others is going to essentially want, uh, some sort of responsibility taken and that will fall on them, that individual. And that's, that's a really no first responder wants to be in that position. They want to observe a situation and then have the latitude to act as they see fit uh, because they're the only ones in a position to observe it in that way. No third party observer sees what they see. It's impossible. And so they have to have that latitude. That latitude comes with a lot of responsibility, a lot of personal responsibility, but also uh, let me, let me think. It's also, It comes, it comes with a heavy weight. Yeah. 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 And it's not a weight that you can sit on for days and just, okay, choice A, choice B, choice C. What do you, it's that weight is felt really powerfully, really strong. And you, you cannot decide you must act in some way and you just hope you're right. Yeah. You really do. Yeah, which which you addressed uh, in the you know in the next part um, of your dissertation with regard to cause and effect analysis, you mm-hmm. went actually into depth, pretty good depth there. Uh, I actually really appreciated that part because it overlaps with the the uh, you know social sciences, what I do, the psychology, sociology, and and whatnot. Um, but the idea that we're trying to weigh cause and effect. Uh, without all of the variables, 
Like you'll, you, you won't ever, you know, it, it reminds me of the, so you know this about me, but I don't know how much the audience does. Uh, the, you know, when I was in college at first, I was, I was, a ma- I was going to be a mathematician. And then I was like, oh, well, maybe I'll just be a math teacher. And then, you know, so I was a numbers guy. And then I had this epiphany one day sitting in a statistics class. Uh, and I realized the most complicated variable on the planet is the human being. And that's when I went, oh my gosh, if I'm going to study, you know, math, if I'm going to study, you know, real numbers, it has to be in the form of people, you Mm -hmm. know, and figuring out those puzzle pieces that make people who they are and behaviors, what they become. Um, And, and, you know, I've spent since then, uh, I've spent pretty much the rest of my life, uh, you know, I quickly moved over into the psychology, sociology stuff and went, okay, yeah, no, this is the most complex math problem on the planet for sure. A hundred percent. There's, there's no doubt I can map animals and I can reasonably predict where they're going. I can map people and there's no way to predict where they're going because Mm -hmm. there there's, there's all these little tiny Petri dishes within the big Petri dish. And as soon as one of those goes into a new place, all of a sudden the whole Petri dish changes. Mm-hmm. And we see that time and time again. And then in particular, I went down the trauma track because of the the way in which it affects uh, the entire mechanism. And so, you know, I, I study the brain and all of that stuff, uh, which I would love to get into at some point. But I, I do want to check. What's your timeline? I should have checked before. Uh, I've got a few more minutes, so we're we're Okay. Okay. I don't want to keep you too long. Uh, I would love to hear you talked about the schemata mental model. Um, and to me, that that bridge that I just I just drew over to the brain science stuff. Uh, I would love to know what you learned in that particular area, because it I know I know it closely aligns to the brain research. Uh, based on what I have seen. And so I'd love, I would love to just get your take. When you talked about the schemata mental model, give us some insight into what, what was going on there. So are you referring to like a l- little bit further down in the dissertation on, is that what you're talking about? Or yeah. Just- yeah. Uh, so here, let me see if I, I'll pull it up really uh, real quick on my screen. Um, I just want to make sure I'm referring to the same thing. So, let me see. I'm I'm on page, looks like 19. Um, on 19, you start talking about NDM, uh, the natu- okay. natural uh, decision-making, uh, naturalistic decision-making. Is that right? Correct. Naturalistic uh, okay. decision-making. And then you, you got into the, 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 you were, you start overlapping a little bit more with what I do. And, and so I would like to know from your angle, I I'm thinking of it like the, you know, the three blind people approach an elephant. And I talk about that on my podcast with a fair amount of frequency. And mm-hmm. I, I'm just trying to get the other angles. How did the schemata mental model within, you know, naturalistic decision-making uh, framework, how did that uh, play out? Like, give it, give me your take on it. Yeah. So that was something I discovered like through the research. I hadn't heard of that. So situational awareness I had heard of, uh, choice making I had heard of. Uh, but when it came into, you know, the discovery of the naturalistic decision making, uh, and then, uh, what's called the, 
the RPD recognition primed decision model. Uh, those, so this is the whole framework of, of those models is based on experience and how those experiences, uh, get logged in or filed away in, in the mind because those, uh, those become something that, uh, all of us, not just first responders, but all of us lean on when it comes to making a decision in, in a uh, fast paced environment. So let's say you're, let's just say you're grilling, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, let's say you're using, uh, let's say you're using coal. And the first time, let's say you're 10 years old, the first time you're ever using coal and you put the lighter fluid on, but you put too much, right? And it flares up. There, there's there's an experiential uh, imprint put in your mind. And so you know that that's possible, right? And so then you go through life and you always have that to lean on. And that uh, that sort of develops your 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 tendencies. and And so that's what naturalistic decision making is like. It's like, okay, fire uh, firefighter responds to a scene and they see, uh, fire in a certain way or a certain pattern and a certain color smoke. And they put all that together. And, you know, six minutes later, the, the roof collapse, boom, mm-hmm. imprint. And then they go through, you know, 25 more fires and they see none of that, but they see other things. Then all of a sudden it clicks back and all of a sudden they see the same combination and they got firefighters inside trying to make a rescue, right? And so then all of a sudden they see the, the, the flames doing the same thing. The color's the same thing. And then they're like, y'all got to get out now. And they're like, you, we got people inside and, 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 and the commander's like, you, you're getting out now. I understand, but you're getting out now. You have to. And so they get out and sure enough, you know, the, the roof collapses again. And, and he just saved a whole bunch of lives. Um, even at the expense of others that maybe could have gotten out, but uh, it they didn't know where they were. So do you spend more lives to try to save more lives? It's like a, and so that's what naturalistic decision-making is like. It's like, how do you imprint the most things possible so that you can lean on those and recognize those in times of, of, of stress? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that makes sense. You're, you're what you're describing. Actually, <laughs> I wasn't thinking about doing this, but I, I pulled something up real quick, and uh, I I want to I want to run you through it because I I don't know. I mean, it's it sounds similar, but you I, w- I want your thoughts. I, I put together a presentation, gosh, maybe ten years ago now, uh, on memory specifically because I was doing some brain research, and you're talking about what I what I frame my frame of reference is scaffolding. Um, so let me, I'm going to go ahead and try to pull this up and see what happens. We'll see. <clears throat> For those of you who are watching, you might be able to see this on, on Rumble or YouTube. And uh, I'm going to share a screen with you and hopefully this will work. So can you, can you see that Jason? Mm-hmm. All right. So you've got, uh, yeah, I don't know if I can hit play and it'll still go or not, but let's try it. All right. Can you see that? Is that big on your screen? It is. Oh, sweet. Um, we'll see how that turns out because this is this is a new one for me. So, you know, what is a memory? 
Um, I, I, I did this as a group. So D- Daniel Siegel, Dr. Dr. Siegel, who's, inc- I mean, he's one of, one of the, the people I read almost all of his books. Uh, he's incredibly uh, good at, at phrasing things so that I can understand them. So he dumbs it down for me. Um, he suggests memory is a combination of the biological response and a cognitive process. Uh, it's mm-hmm. an experience dependent process. That's what I heard you saying. <laughs> Is that- uh, yeah, yeah, essentially. Yep. So then he goes on and defines it as the way past events affect future function. Okay, so then we talk about types of memories. There's two types of memory. There's implicit memory, a form of memory that doesn't have an internal experience. So it's like a photo. Uh, and then there's explicit memory, which is like a video. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, so in a situation like this, and I could get into the brain stuff, but I, I don't want to bore you to death. Um, in a situation like this, what you're saying is the the providers, uh, they they have to be scaffolding old memories in video form because they have to be able to adjust to nuances all the time. Yes. And because it's the cause and the effect. If they were dependent on implicit memories, I would suggest that they would be less effective because it's they go back to the, the that snapshot and so they they can't play it out in their mind and so they're really running around collecting explicit memories or they should be yes or because they... implicit memory is like a classroom setting where they're telling you what you should do in a situation explicit memory is you either doing it in training or in real life where you're actually feeling those uh the sensory overload. Yeah, exactly. So that to me is a super, I mean, honestly, I could totally geek out on this. Um, the, the scaffolding process, the way I describe it here, I'm going to get out of this too. Cause uh, the way I disca- describe the scaffolding uh, process is, you know, you, you have a, a set of glasses. I literally will pull out my, my blue blockers that I use when I'm on the screen too much. And I stick them on and I say, okay, I can see, uh, but it's, it's tinted slightly. Well, what happens if my, my glasses that I put on my face are, are tinted with uh, not just a color issue, but a vision issue, meaning they have somebody else's prescription. Now, all of a sudden, the whole world looks different. Is it, does it make it clearer or does it make it blurry? Does it make it, you know, make more sense or less sense? And so, you know, I, I, when I talk about scaffolding, I'm, I, I talk about you put the glasses on, but then sometimes we leave them on and we take another set of glasses and put them over the top and another and put them over the top and another and put them over the top. And by the time we're all, it's all said and done, we got 10 pairs of glasses and our view of the world comes through the initial lens first, right? The idea that that first paradigm, the engram, that first memory. And so it takes time when I talk about undoing the scaffolding so that we can really truly learn is a process of undoing the scaffolding and tracing it back to that initial memory where, you know, you, you, maybe somebody goes into law enforcement because they saw mom and dad in a fight, the cops came and saved the day. And so they have this sort of, I mean, and and not all law enforcement does this, but some probably get into it for reasons like that. And they have in in their way back memory, the idea that they can be a hero, which is great in one way, 
and awful in another, because if mm-hmm. we think we can be a hero in a chaotic situation, inevitably we're going to find out we can't, that there's going to be a situation that dominates us mm-hmm. versus you, we can come in and, you know, ride in and save the day. Um, and so those, those kinds of realities hit and cause significant issues because cause and effect, we applied cause and effect mm-hmm. to an early memory. And then in the later years, cause and effect didn't work the same way because we were in a different role. We were in that, you know, director role or the provider role and not the observer role. Yeah, actually, that's a perfect segue into something else. And we can maybe close with this. But if sure. you if you pull up uh, my model that I put, I think it's on page 44. All right. I, um, let's see if you can I show that. What you're talking about here. Let me. Let me get to it real quick. All right. So give us a moment, folks. I'm not trying to bore you to death, but also want to make sure we do it right. I'm going to share. There you go. And 44, you said. Mm-hmm. So people can see me. If you're with me, you can see me scrolling really, really fast. Uh, that's not it. I know which one you're talking about. 44. Nope, keep going. That's efficacy. Yep, almost. Should be right. Nope, 45, I guess. There you go. All right. Okay. There you go. So this is the... Go ahead. This is the conceptual model. So the scaffolding scaffolding thing that you were discussing um, fits perfectly with with this, um, which prevents what you're saying from occurring. Because this is also a scaffolding because it starts with how on the bottom left, mm-hmm. and then it's a continuous cycle. So just follow the blue line and you collect information, situate, do, and then you collect, situate, do. And so this is, this can happen like during an event, or it can happen over years and years of gaining experience. So that very first image that you have, where you think you can be a hero, uh, because you've collected some information, you've situated yourself within that either hypothetically or, or real, and then you did something or, or envisioned yourself doing something, right? It starts with that. And then you become a cop or you become uh, an EMT or become a firefighter. Then you experience it for real over and over again. And you start developing this model where you go around, you collect, situate, do, collect, situate, do, and you do it in various situations over and over again. You can actually eliminate that first part where you just think you can be something and you start to realize what you can actually do because you might be really good at some stuff and not good at other things that you thought you might be good at because you're actually doing it over and over again. And that's where the training mechanism kicks in because you can, you know, after two or three years, you're, you're better. And then three or four years later, you're even better. And then you become a supervisor and you start training your people to become better and better at this cycle. So this is event to event and um, over time in your own development as a, as a, as a provider and as a leader. And, and so you can erase those older memories because you know, Hey, I thought I could do this. I really can't do that, but I am really good at this. And so then you get yourself in a situation where, you know, you get called to something and you're like, I got this one. I'm good. I know I'm good at this. And that's this. There's another situation I'm not as good at. 
but you know that, and you don't have to lean on that, that first lens that you were talking mm-hmm. about because you've removed it. And now you're looking through the lenses that are, are, that are real and that really help you. So. So this plays into something like you know, when we're dealing with something like a hero complex, right? Somebody mm-hmm. who, who, who just wants to be the hero. Uh, there, there's often, um, you know, you, you're talking in this model about the, the, the limitations we learn we have, mm-hmm. you know, we, we have strengths, we have limitations. I, I get that now, but when you have somebody who doesn't accurately assess their strengths and limitations because of blind spots, right? Mm-hmm. They, sometimes people put on that lens and they can't look through it another way they or they refuse to right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and so it requires then that leadership accountability in the middle mm-hmm. say um we're no we're going to insert ourselves here mm-hmm. because no but they can only do that after the fact yes um but hopefully that fact is in training not in something real because as a as a Marine and uh, you'll know this uh, you, when you do training over and over again, you can tell who's got it and who doesn't in those situations. Like, and, and so uh, you don't have to worry about them in a real situation because you wouldn't put them in that situation if you can help it. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense to me, except I'm going to push back a tiny bit sure, because I remember in basic training, I had, there was, I mean, we, I think we all had them. Uh, do you want me to take this off the screen or do you want oh, me to leave it up? No, you're fine. I mean, unless you need to refer to it. No. Um, okay. So uh, there was this recruit and he, oh my gosh, was, he was like the, the platoon turd. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, his motivation to do well was fine. His desire was there. He just could not do it. Uh, I I remember many times we were looking for his socks. He just mm-hmm. couldn't, he couldn't figure his crap out. Mm-hmm. Ran into him about a year later and he was, he was a grunt. And in a year from basic, uh, you know, he, he had promoted to uh, a, a corporal, which is stupid fast. Like, like that is, you know, if you're coming out of basic, a private, because he was like the platoon turn mm-hmm. and you, you pick up corporal within a, a basically a, right around a year, year and a half, something like that. And I'm going, how in the world? And he looked at me in the eyes and he said, hey, man, I don't know what happened in basic training, but I just could not organize my thoughts. But once I got out into the fleet, uh, you know, after, after about 30 days, you know, it just started clicking. Mm-hmm. And so he was not what we thought he was in training. Mm-hmm. Like he wasn't even like how did dude survived. I remember, you know, going up, uh, Mount, uh, mother effer mm-hmm. and, and he's, uh, for those of you who don't know, that's in camp Pendleton and it's, it's, a uh, this endless hill basically. And every plateau, like he would, he was in the back. They put him back there on purpose. They were trying to break him because they were tired of him not figuring it out. And, you know, they were like, well, let's, let's just get him to quit. 
and then reset him and then we'll be good. But, so they, they had him in the back and they would, you know, they would call him and then he would have to run and catch up and then they'd call him. And so he probably did Mount Mother effort twice while we all did it once. And that's not an exaggeration. Like it was, they were trying to get him to, to say, I quit. Um, and he didn't. Right. So uh, maybe in part that contributed, but we all thought like, he, I mean, good luck. Uh, I, I wish you well. Uh, and I hope to never be in combat with you to, you know, a year, year and a half later, he figured it out. So sometimes training is different than the real thing. How do you account for that? Yeah. Uh, so he was still in a training mode he he did figure it out through training so even if it was you go through basic which is a total unique form of training where everyone breaks and everyone's a turd right to mct which is you're you know you you might still be a turd but you smell slightly better right mm-hmm. that's about it and then you get into a, a unit and now you're still training so you start removing some of the restrictions from boot camp let's say to mct and then from mct to your unit, you start removing those and that starts freeing up mental capacity to actually engage with the knowledge that you've developed, which was always there. It just didn't, it didn't come out. So, um, that's how I account for that is, is you've got to remove, you've got to backpedal. You got to take off some of those things that are engaging those cognitive functions, uh, that, that are preventing this individual from realizing their own potential. And that's a, and that's part of training too. You've got to do that. You've got to put all the stress on and then you've got to pull some back and then add it and then pull it back because they have to learn to develop with within that uh, environment. Does that make sense? And so yeah. it was overwhelming him at first. And then maybe over time, he figured out how to deal with that because he he had that uh, that Zoom effect, you know, mm-hmm. in, out, in, out and was able to sort of deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. Now it makes me think about, uh, you know, like we have, uh, we have a a capacity, like a working memory capacity. We have, uh, we have a long-term memory capacity and a short-term memory capacity, you know, and I think, you know, we, we look at people like servers and restaurants who come by and they don't carry any pen or any paper or anything. And they take an order for a table of eight and they get it all right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how in the world do they do that? It's because what they have done is they have, uh, you know, really honed the skill of short-term memory capacity. They hold it for the next two minutes, three minutes. They get to the screen, pop, 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 pop. And then they totally forget it until they come back to the table with it. So that they've got it in the short-term memory, they they keep it on recall just long enough to get to the food to the table. And really, most of them, my understanding is they they start with one as their their starting point, and that's how they remember it. Like they put it in rooms of their house. It's that short-term memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of skills that go into that. But I once you get further in my dissertation, you'll get into that as well. No, I've been I've been looking at. Oh, it. Uh, okay, cool. I, I've, I'm already there, but I don't want to dig into it today. No, it's long. I, yeah, I know. Um, yeah. But it, it's a good segue for something that we can dig into the the next time that we meet. I think that would be fun. Yeah, cool. Um, anyway, uh, awesome. I'm super glad you joined me. Uh, hopefully, 
uh, the recording went well. <laughs> uh, now is the the time to find out. Um, yeah. If nothing else, the video will record, and uh, we will go ahead and post that potentially. Um, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and log us off here. Hey, everybody! Thanks for joining us. Uh, you know, stay tuned. You're gonna you're gonna know how to connect if you want to connect with me. Um, you know, potentially uh, get you connected with my brother if there's a question you have for him. Uh, I'm happy to forward them on, uh, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Take a look at the details of our podcast for links to our website and other helpful information.